Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. In November 2019, ahead of World AIDS Day, La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society held a one-day symposium looking critically at the intersection points of HIV and people's lives, especially people in communities affected by HIV who have not been at the centre of the Australian HIV response. In a four-part series, you will hear from a variety of public health professionals discussing various aspects of HIV and intersectionality. This week, in the third part of our series, you hear from Dr. Jennifer Power, Research Fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. You'll also hear from Kirsty Machen, CEO of Positive Women Victoria, both discussing the issue of intersectionality and evidence in HIV research and advocacy. First up, let's hear from Dr. Jennifer Power. Um, at Archers, I, I run a study called the HIV Future Study, which is a study we've been doing for about 25 years or so, a bit less, um, looking at the um, quality of life among people living with HIV in Australia. So for a long time, the major critique, I guess, or limitation of that study is the fact that it doesn't um, capture very well the experiences of people from diverse communities. So it captures very well the experiences of gay and bisexual men um, who were born in Australia, but it's been less effective as a, as a method, as a tool to measure or to capture the experiences of people from other, from other population groups, from other backgrounds, including women. We're often asked, you know, what are we going to do about that? How do we capture other experiences? And it's sort of um, tapping into what Min was just saying about how we determine who's important and whether it's a methodological issue or a political issue that determines what we focus on. But essentially, um, um, over the years, we've tried to take up that challenge of, of designing research that better captures a diversity of experiences of people living with HIV. So we can better understand what's going on in communities. And it always sort of hits a wall. It hits a wall um, partly because... Um, sorry, it hits a wall. And we've been going around and around trying to sort of work out methodological or, or practical reasons why that research never quite gets off the ground, never quite happens. We never quite get the funding. The funding's not long enough. Um, it's sort of short-term projects. There's not enough investment. There's not enough... Well, there's a lot of things going on. Um, and I think it... This presentation is sort of eventually born out of frustration around not quite understanding why that is. And I think the reason why, or the problem here, is that we've been trying to find methodological or research solutions for what's effectively a political issue. There's a, there's a much bigger structural and historical um, set of barriers to doing really good quality social research that captures the experiences of a wide range of people who are living with HIV. Um, in, so over the last year or so, we've, we've run a very small project at, at Archers looking at the needs of people living with HIV from, from diverse communities, from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. So the project had 
fairly complex beginnings, which meant we didn't actually start at the point of looking at people's needs. We started at the point of looking at what research methods would be best employed to capture the experiences um, of a diverse range of people. Um, but we quickly realised that data such as, you know, a lot of that epidemiological data is being collected through national surveillance strategies. So we, we know we've got data on early diagnosis, on late diagnosis, on CD4 counts, on treatment uptake, on some of the, the aspects of the cascade of care. What we don't have is really good research that asks questions such as whether or not people are receiving the necessary support, clinical or social support, to live well as a person living with HIV. And we don't have very, very little research. We don't have much research on the type of supports that would assist people to live well. So I keep thinking of what you were saying before. Try, uh, try and live in Pakenham and find a doctor, mm -hmm. you know, an S100 prescriber in Pakenham. We don't have research showing that there's people living in Pakenham who are really struggling to find good medical care for their HIV or to find a doctor who understands them or to find a doctor who, uh, you know, can comprehensively address... Um, women's health issues along with HIV issues. So there's, a, there's some barrier to collecting um, that research. Of course, as a researcher, the obvious solution to that is that we need some really good local level, small scale research projects that ask people what's going on for them, what can we do about it, you know, what, what do you need? Um, it seems really obvious, but we just sort of can't get off the ground. And I think that's because the funding that we get to do research with people living with HIV from overseas, who are overseas born, is funding for every single person living with HIV who was born overseas. And that grouping makes no sense. Um, um, that grouping makes no sense. Um, as long as we, we're talking about every single person born overseas, from whatever country, from whatever community, of whatever gender, of whatever age, the only data we're going to collect is data that sort of says, well, there's diversity of needs. We need to talk to people locally to understand what their needs are. Women on the line. So I actually think the bigger barriers relate to some of those larger political questions about how populations are being conceptualised, which is what you talked about before, Min. We've spoken... The epidemiological category that a lot of decisions about HIV funding are made on is people born overseas. People born overseas works when it comes to looking at patterns in the HIV epidemic. It come, when it comes to looking at things like late diagnosis, it doesn't work when it comes to looking at what people need mm. and what's going on for people at the local level. Yet as a researcher, when we try and get funding for that, it's not there because the trend in HIV at the moment is towards big data. It's mm. towards big, big epidemiological data that tracks basically the impact of PrEP. Mm. Um, they want to see big data showing where increases in new diagnoses are going down. Mm. They want to see patterns along the cascade, so who's dropping in and out of care. Um, so, so there's this trend towards funding research projects that are large <coughs> and a trend away from some of that really good social research that we saw in the 90s mm. about gay men that was very local, very behavioural, very much driven within community. Mm. Um, and it had a bunch of researchers that were located in community who were driving it. Mm. So it's much harder to get funding for that type of research today, even though that's the, the sort of research we want. And I think the reason for that is, is political, it's not methodological. Mm. It's the fact that, one, we're looking at a different stage of the epidemic, mm. but also I think we need to think about what drove that. So the reason why that research happened, to, to be 
honest, I think, is not because the government looked at the epidemiological data and said, oh, gay men need better research. We need to do more to understand what's happening for gay and bisexual men. No way. It happened because gay and bisexual men were there demanding it. Mm. It was very much an activist solution. It was very much a political solution. There was a drive. Um, and that's why we have the, the really unique um, and high-quality social research about what was going on for gay men that we have today. Mm. And I think the fact that we had a lot of gay men at that time who were located in research, who were well-educated, who were well-resourced, who had money, who had political connection, who were doctors, who were lawyers, who drove that, um, made all the difference. So the question I think now is what is it going to take at this point in history to get that same political will to do, to do some of that really good social research to answer questions like, you know, how do we meet the needs of, keep pointing at you, of that woman living in Pakenham? Because it's important. Um, and unless we collect that data, we're in this vicious cycle of, you know, we want the data so that we can advocate the need for program funding, but if we don't have that program funding, we can't access people, so we can't get the data, so we're in a bit of a cycle. Mm -hmm. But that cycle's only going to be, be or that barrier's only, only going to be overcome with really good advocacy. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to research, actually, the population of researchers really matters. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of, like I was saying, um, well-resourced, well powerful white gay men driving research. You know, it mattered. It was life or death for a lot of those men. It was really important to community and they were located in that community. They made it happen. How do we then translate uh, or draw from the experience and the leadership and the activist history that's in the HIV sector at the moment, you know, to do the same for other populations who don't necessarily have um, the, the resources or the background or, or the civil rights history in Australia to make that happen. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think until we do that, until we see the absence of research as a political issue mm. rather than an issue of method, um, because the methods will follow once there's, there's a will to draw attention to different mm. populations. The science will follow that. This, it's, it's not a scientific issue. And I think we keep talking about it as, you know, how are you going to adapt your research to capture a wider range of experiences or how are you going to do another a project that, you know, that better, you know, um, pulls in a, a diverse range of people? I don't think that's the problem. I think we need people who are connected to communities to, to do that research. So we need to be finding ways to resource communities, to build the skill base, to build people who can, can do that, who have those connections, who know how to work with community, who have spent time in community, who know the right questions to ask, in the same way that, that gay men could do that, to ask mm. questions of gay community. We need somehow to find the funding and the will to help and, or to support leadership for research in a, in a range of communities. Yeah. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. If you're just tuning in, this is the third of a four-part series with recordings from a one-day symposium looking into HIV and intersectionality. You just heard Dr. Jennifer Power, Research Fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. She was discussing the issue of intersectionality and evidence in HIV research and advocacy. Next up, let's hear from Kirsty Machen, CEO of Positive Women Victoria. Um, I'm Kirsty Machen. I'm the Executive Officer of Positive Women Victoria. 
Personally, I've been involved in the HIV sector for a very long time now, and I just wanted to comment before I start on what I wanted to say about the point that somebody made about organisations not doing advocacy. On the contrary, I've been a part of the sector for a long time, and I've watched how that advocacy has changed and does change, and I think organisations have been thinking very deeply about it from the very first time I saw the Australian Federation of AIDS organisations do the very first project to kind of understand the experiences of Indigenous <coughs> men who have sex with men and sister girls in community. And that was a huge project and it was really re revealing. So I think that work has been going on. That's just a personal kind of observation. Um, from Positive Women's perspective, we're obviously a peer-led organisation. Our two peer workers today are unavailable, so I'm here to offer, I guess, my perspective as um, the executive officer and to reflect on some of these issues that have come up today. And the one I just want to focus on briefly because we can then go to the panel discussion and I don't have a huge amount to say is the concept of how we kind of collect evidence when what we're actually really looking at is the individual experiences of people in front of us. Our funders and others talk about cultural and linguistically diverse communities but really what <laughs> um, I, don't, I think that the language should be that we don't see culturally and linguistically diverse people, we see culturally and linguistically specific people. So we're an organisation um, for women and the people who come to our services aren't called community women or women from diverse backgrounds, they're women. And so I actually think that we can do something that we don't necessarily kind of do as advocates, which is actually legitimise individual experience. I'm not sure that I agree that we need a whole vast and ongoing kind of repeated kind of exercise in collecting specific sort of information about problems in kind of service delivery because in fact we already kind of know what they are. We see them all the time, they come to us all the time and I think Jen is really quite right to say that these are, these are political kind of issues. But it's also true that the way that HIV funding has been structured around is kind of big picture kind of epidemiological kind of issues. And one of the things that nobody says about targets like 1990-90 or even the more ambitious 95-95-95 is that it actually implies a 5 and a 10. And what we need to kind of say is to, to, to repeat and reiterate to um, governments that it's actually, this isn't a kind of issue about numbers or epidemiology, this is a flat out social justice issue. So we can't sort of continue to accept that there will be a 5 and there will be a 10 when we know very well the individuals who are making up that five and, and that ten. And they're the people who come to our organisation. We had something like 37 women diagnosed with HIV in Victoria last year, and nearly all of those women, bar a couple, I believe, were overseas born. Mm. So there's a whole set of changes going on, and we don't and this is this is tricky work, this is detailed work, and, and governments have to also face up it's kind of expensive work, but the truth is that we also know the information that's there. We know that we need to diversify sexual health. Um, access. We know that we need better quality of care for people who are diagnosed in, in low caseload settings, specifically for women. And we need to kind of make sure that in any kind of reviews or other things of how sexual health services and other services get played out across the community, that what we're not doing is that we're not tacitly accepting there will be a 5%, there will be a 10%, and it's okay to give those people lesser care and better care because it's not to do with diversity it's to, to do with individual experience and legitimising that. And I believe that we should take anecdote somewhat more seriously, in fact, a lot more seriously than we do when we're advocates and not be ashamed of using those individual stories because they're very powerful. I want to ask, like, what is evidence? Like, what 
actually constitutes evidence? And that's one of the framing questions for today. But I just want to hear from each of you about, you know, who has the power to um, to say that something is evidence or something is not evidence? And, and how do we how do we sort of well, I think, Min, you touched on this earlier, that the evidence that's given most credibility is numbers, um, and big numbers. And I often grapple with this in the same way Kirsty was just talking about, that um, when you do quantitative data, when you have numbers, um, a whole bunch of people get missed. Because if the number's small, if it's 5% or 10%, it's seen as insignificant, if it's not the majority, if it doesn't sit in the middle of the curve, um, people people get lost. So I think we need to be put a really, or cast a really critical eye on what is considered appropriate evidence or gold standard evidence or evidence that gets noted um, for policy purposes, for programmatic purposes, for funding purposes. Um, and also, but it's a big problem in Australia in terms of producing evidence because numbers are small and it comes back in some ways to my point um, or the point that may or may not have been clear um, is that if, if what we're talking about is small localised um, research studies to gain evidence about what people's needs are and what we're talking about is say um, 30 women across Victoria in some communities or 20 women you know, in the south of Perth who have particular needs, or young women from Indonesia, or, you know, middle-aged gay men from um, Malaysia. They're very small numbers, and it's very hard to get research that people pay attention to, and even harder to get funding for such research when what we're talking about is really small numbers. So people talk about the need for evidence, but what they really want is big numbers, and often, <laughs> you know, there's a whole heap of stories within that that get... That, that we can't tell because it doesn't fit within the sort of evidence that people take seriously. Acceptable knowledge, what is acceptable knowledge? Yeah. Women on the line. I, I actually, I think that that's absolutely true. I think we, you know, we, there is a kind of, um, a really specific sort of idea about what evidence is that's driven by a certain way of kind of doing politics. All of us who work in HIV are also embedded in a bigger kind of health sector. And in some ways, when I was listening to the, the point about, um, for example, um, lack of services for um, women with HIV who are living in, in Peckham, say, um, well, in fact, any, any, I mean, there is a lack of services for anybody in, in regional um, um, and in outer suburban areas that everybody is aware of. And I kind of think that sometimes the, the HIV sector can do better at um, kind of making the broader kind of political kind of point about the unacceptability of the way our health service services are working in general. That across all areas of kind of healthcare, there is a, fu a fundamental problem of kind of social injustice and kind of access to services that goes right back to kind of indiv individual experiences. And actually, in some ways, it's it, I think it's kind of profoundly kind of racist. I think that I have sort of seen stories through research that Heather Maguagua, one of our peer workers, um, led on women from African diaspora communities um, in Victoria who are living with HIV. And some of the circumstances in which women kind of received their diagnosis were so kind of, uh, well, shocking. And they were just not things that we would accept in any other kind of community. Um, 
around um, complete sort of lack of um, dignity and disclosure in diagnosis. People who were kind of outed um, publicly in, in waiting rooms kind of before they'd even received their own HIV diagnosis and while pregnant. One of the things that I'm kind of interested in from a kind of evidence kind of point of view is the evidence that we can also bring into our work from, from other health sector areas from people who are living with mental illness, from people who we know who's, who, don't, um, who don't kind of um, access services and for whom those problems are similarly kind of um, exacerbated by, um, by kind of being, you know, marginal to power. So I think what I would like to sort of say about it is that there's, if we kind of think of ourselves as kind of working kind of intersectionally, um, we've got a whole set of other kind of allies that we can draw on. We are all small organisations, mostly we're all specifically funded to work in HIV and we sort of can't, we can't do it um, on our own. The other thing I would like to say conversely about evidence on a small scale is that I, I'm not ashamed to kind of say that sometimes the numbers are small. Sometimes the numbers need to be small. There were 16 people in that research project on the African um, community women, but actually I know what it took to get those 16 women to speak out and those stories were really kind of powerful and you know you would never dismiss the kind of strength of a document like that just on the basis of that's only 16 stories. That is in fact 16 stories and that's, that's something profound. We had our very first um, peer support training day for um, African-born women and we had five women um, appear um, for that session and again the, the, the work and the kind of um, care that Heather had taken to, to get those women to feel safe to come to that thing was meant that it was actually getting five people was a kind of an important kind of achievement because that's a kind of basis to sort of start <coughs> developing things going forward. So we shouldn't be ashamed of, of numbers being small. Actually they need to be small if we're going to be seeing the people um, that we're working with as people. Yeah. I actually think that's an incredibly important point is that often research to get 16 people takes years <laughs> like literally years and particularly if you're a researcher who hasn't worked um, with a community before building those relationships building those networks building trust building connections literally takes years and often we get funding for six months and it's the same as what you were saying you're expected to deliver something in six months and there's a very limited understanding among funded funders for research or programs about <laughs> about that so you get this you know study that has five people and people dismiss that thinking it's not good enough and it's not it's it's massive actually and peter mentioned before the work that priscilla pyatt did um with aboriginal communities in australia priscilla spent 10 years or more building relationships with community to be able to do that and was really dedicated um in the most incredible way actually and i think research like that is is sort of or building um skills in someone who's, who's able to or willing and interested in committing that, that length of time is actually what's needed to, to produce research that's taken seriously often. In this part of the panel, Kirsty Machen and Dr Jennifer Power discuss community engagement in relation to HIV research. Just say there, can I just say, Peter, that I actually really appreciate that point that you raised about like um, you know uh, research projects and people being sort of over research the first kind of fundamentally kind of um, ethical question to ask on any research project is is this a piece of research that needs to be done and to absolutely be clear when you're doing it what is the expected sort of benefit and outcome that it's going to deliver for the people who are participating in the research people aren't diversity trophies for um, a set of kind of you know, feel good exercises. I mean, the, the research has to be absolutely kind of 
connected in an ethical and kind of authentic and honest way with the expected outcome of kind of actually improving health outcomes for those for those who are participating in the research and sometimes that might just mean you know not not doing it at all or kind of recognizing that the information is out there and can be um, legitimately sourced in other ways. Yeah, I actually just wanted to add something about community engagement. Um, there's a few of us in this room actually who've been um, who have worked with around this stuff um, relating to community involvement or meaningful meaningful community involvement in HIV cure research or clinical research related to HIV. And the thing that keeps coming up for me in that in that research is the extent to which knowledge systems and research systems and you mentioned it before as well. I've quoted you all over my notes here. Um, the, the knowledge systems are so exclusive, like, you know, you're taken seriously if you have a level of education, if you have a doctor in front of your name, if you can speak a certain language, um, and experience and knowledge that's, that's um, presented differently or spoken differently, such as lived experience, is seen as a different form of knowledge, and you might consult on that, but actually there's a lack of imagination um, I think among the research community, and I can say that because I am part of that community, um, for understanding how um, so different forms of knowledge, including the knowledge of, of lived experience, can actually really benefit your research. So it creates a different lens, it creates a different way of knowing, it creates a different way of understanding. People can help you interpret your research findings, can actually play a role. And I think if we had a, a more democratic approach to knowledge, if we understood that, that there are different forms of knowledge and different forms of knowledge were taken seriously, we could start to build um, broader research teams, not just your advisory board that sits over here, but actually research teams in which there was people with very different forms of experience um, contributing to a research project all the way. We've come to the end of our third in a four-part series from, of recordings from a one-day symposium looking into HIV and intersectionality. You just heard from Kirsty Machen, CEO of Positive Women Victoria, and Dr. Jennifer Power, Research Fellow at the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society. Both were discussing the issue of intersectionality and evidence in HIV research and advocacy. Join us next week for the fourth and final part in our series, looking at HIV and intersectionality. We'll be hearing from Jane Dicker from Harm Reduction Victoria, Jane Green and Dylan from the Vixen Collective, a Victorian peer sex worker organization, as well as Sarah Fegan, a peer navigator from Living Positive Victoria. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and non-gender conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Le Tigre. I'm Hope Matumbu and I hope you can tune in again next time.